Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. from Wexford had a cough. I know this because I'd been listening to him hacking away throughout the night. The dividing wall between our adjoining North London bedsits was thin. Plywood and wallpaper all that separated us. And now on this Christmas morning I was awakened again, this time to the sound of carols. The man from Wexford had his radio on very, very loudly. My room was small, I could reach the two-ring gas cooker without getting out of bed. (laughs) I made tea, and because of the day that was in it, I poured a mug for the man from Wexford. With little worth stealing, we rarely locked our rooms. I knocked, walked in, and saw he was still in bed. I made you a mug of tea. He nodded towards the dressing table. How many sugars did you put in? I was turning to leave when he pointed again to the dressing table. There's a card there for you. I noticed a small stack of stamped and addressed envelopes. Shuffling through them, I came to one addressed to me. Happy Christmas, he said. Many happy returns, I replied. Back in my room, I opened the card. It depicted a robin and snow. A new ten-pound note bearing the image of the Queen of England dropped to the floor. It was crisp and unblemished. Usually Wexford made a great show of folding his notes in such a way that the image of the monarch faced inwards when he placed them in his back trouser pocket. (laughs) Revenge for Vinegar Hill, he'd say. (laughs) Mid-morning he returned the mug. His arrival was heralded by a cloud of brute aftershave that would make your eyes water. (laughs) He was wearing his Galtimore suit, a mohair electric blue ensemble Irish showband cut, (laughs) ideal for impressing neighbours during visits home. Will we venture out, he asked. I knew he wasn't referring to mass. We were both well out of reach of priests and mothers, so it had to be the pub. We sauntered in the direction of Kilburn. On this holy of holy days, we were following a distant star. And if we were not magi or shepherds, then surely we were black sheep when we arrived at a sign glowing above the door of the rifle volunteer. In fairness to us, we were not the first to arrive. The saloon bar was packed, the wolf tones blasted from the jukebox. Poker and pinball machines competed with shouting voices. Let's try the public bar, he said. It might be quieter. We got settled into a corner, and I asked about the unsent Christmas cards. You might have missed the last posting day, I offered. 
I decided not to bother this year. It's not as if I ever get any sent back over here. Before I could ask if they had his current address, he caught my arm and urged me to hush. I could see him holding his breath and listening. It was like someone who thinks they may have heard the first cuckoo of spring and pause awaiting the next call. A man was singing. We knew him from around Cricklewood, a tall, thin fellow who looked as if he might have been formed from a few pencil strokes. The fist that held his drink dwarfed a pint glass, knuckles scarred from work. As he sang, his eyes closed tightly, like some creature newly emerged from darkness and bothered by light. I listened to the song and I knew it well, the plaintive croppy boy. And somehow on this Christmas day in London, it was a real killer. The words emotionally ambushed my drinking companion. I knew he was transported to a place he loved and had somehow lost. At the siege of Ross did my father fall and at Gory, my loving brothers all. I alone am left to my name and race. I will go to Wexford to take their place. When he'd finished, the singer refused to sing again or accept a drink. At two o'clock, the pub shut and we were hunted home. Outside, the light was changing and the gray drizzle falling. The shoulders of Wexford's mohair suit had darkened and his cheeks were wet. We said little until we came to our red post box. He paused to read the next collection date. I might send those few cards, he said. It'd be a shame to waste the postage. By the time we arrived at the bedsit, the drizzle had long stopped. However, I noticed Wexford's cheeks were still wet. Outside our doors, we shook hands and wished one another a happy Christmas for the second time on that very peculiar day. I had beans to heat and sausages to fry, and the man from Wexford had cards to post. Through the wall, I could hear his cough had not improved. But worse still, the radio was back on. Country music, loud as ever. We might both be in for a long and broken Christmas night. Thank you. Christmas in the mid-70s was the first time the five of us siblings were together as adults. 
My three brothers and my sister had all emigrated to London as youngsters in the 60s. I, the youngest by well over a decade, grew up as an only child, the only one who wasn't forced to take the boat. The excitement was palpable in our house as each one of them arrived home in turn that Christmas in Jimmy Costigan's hackney car. My mother and I did not conceal our expectations as suitcases were opened and the booty handed over. <laughs> she had asked for an unusual present, a set of candlesticks. The prized object was protected in rolled up clothing and presented with solemnity. A few candle stubs were swiftly removed from jam pots and placed regally in the new holder, a silver-plated one with three intertwining arms. For the first time in many years, all seven of us were to gather around the Christmas table. Food and drink would be required, far more than could be carried in message bags on the handlebars of bicycles. Transport was needed. A car would be hired for the shopping expedition. We were, after all, people who planned to sit around a table lit by the soft flicker of candles in a candelabrum. <laughs> My brother Michael could drive. He showed us photographs of the little car he had in London, a Triumph Herald. We marvelled at his prowess and so looked forward to travelling in a car driven by one of our own. And so the powder blue Ford Anglia was rented from the augustly named Care House Garage to us Bork's Garage in the square. Trips to the big shops in Clonmel occurred very rarely. My father had cycled the 20 mile round trip once to buy a blade for the scythe. Sometimes we travelled to Clanmel by bus to buy a few sticks of furniture from a second-hand shop run by an Italian, a Mr Carey. I often bought a comic for the journey home from a huckster shop near the bus station. But we'd have no paltry truck with huckster shops today. Today, we'd load our goods into a supermarket trolley. We were bursting with the expansiveness of our expedition. We piled gatto cakes and lucasade, tins of Mikado biscuits and peaches into the trolley with a kind of wild abandon. We were intoxicated by the rare wonder of being together, flush with the saved up emigrant shillings and the grandeur of a car in the car park to ferry us home. We were just about to leave the supermarket with our bulging shopping bags when we spotted the shabby-looking, unshaven man at the checkout. Here we were with our seasonal plenty, and there he was, a couple of days shy of Christmas, and all he was buying was a small loaf and a half dozen eggs. He couldn't have less, my brother Patsy declared identifying closely with the underdog he now described as a poor devil. Poor man's shopping, I chimed in, as we further decried the lowly state of our fellow customer. We concluded that the world's goods were badly and unfairly divided. 
we also decided in swift and energetic unison that we'd redress the balance that day for that one individual. Wait here for a minute, we instructed the bemused stranger. My sister minded our bags and detained the man with simple chat about Christmas. Meanwhile, the rest of us flew around the supermarket aisles, filling a couple of baskets with choice fare. We made collective decisions about what he'd like to eat. He looked like a rasher and sausage man, we declared, <laughs> as we threw in the best galty bacon. He'd need cheese and cold meat for sandwiches. The basics were a foregone conclusion. Tea, sugar, bread and butter. And what would Christmas be for him without a few bottles of stout? We decided as we ventured into the off-license section, swift as customers who had won a trolley dash. We waved away the man's confused questions as we handed over the bag of groceries to him. Who are these from, he asked. Who are you? We're just a family, I said, in the regal and lofty tones of the magnanimous. The food is a gift from us. I spoke as one from a strong dynasty, duty bound to be benevolent to the less fortunate. We exuded the glow of the righteous as we loaded our shopping into the boot of the hired Anglia. We had practiced a random act of kindness. We had stood in solidarity with a poor man. We had acted out of a pure and spontaneous impulse to do good. It was a jaw-dropping moment when he sped past us in his smart Jeep. <laughs> shooting the horn at us and waving, <laughs> waving in a confused way. We looked at one another in bewilderment, decided that appearances can be deceptive, <laughs> and that maybe our father was right when he warned us to never let anyone take us for idiots. <laughs> And that included ourselves. Before I start, I'd like to say thank you to Sean Kearns, who, uh, who helped me with this piece, and Wexford County Library, which is absolutely brilliant, especially Michael in Local Studies, who helped me solve the mystery of Father Sinnott earlier today. 
the reason for this. You'll see why that's important at some point. On the Saturday before Christmas, 1886, a small group of men met in a room of a solicitor's practice at number two, Row Street, here in Wexford Town. They were the members of the newly formed Wexford County Board of the Gaelic Athletic Association, and they were gathered to make the arrangements for the first ever Wexford County Championships. Outside the meeting, Wexford Town was alive with Christmas. Butchers were selling cuts of the season for the Christmas table. Drapers put fancy shawls and dresses in their windows. Jewelers offered watches and rings, and everywhere there were Christmas cards and fancy goods to buy. Furlongs on South Main Street announced they were now selling Gaelic footballs, along with the usual store of books and musical instruments. Mr Kyo, the new Wexford GA County Secretary, told all the local clubs that they would have to formally enter to compete in the new championship. They could do so at the offices of the People newspaper at the cost of 10 shillings each before Thursday the 30th of December. By the end of that Thursday evening, a total of 24 teams had entered the football championship. The county board quickly rented a field from the O'Brien family at Murntown. They put a paling around the field, erected a stand which could cater for 600 people built a clubhouse and provided a refreshment stall to sell sandwiches, cigars and non-alcoholic drinks. In this last respect, the County Board pleaded with the Wexford public to assist them in putting down any attempt to sell whiskey and putching. And then there was the pitch. The surface was described as being as correct as a billiard table with a new cloth. You could say that it was a pitch perfect for hurling. But there was no hurling championship in Wexford in 1887. In fact, the stick and ball game that then thrived in the county was cricket. The Wexford GEA County Board actually discussed at a meeting whether cricket matches might be conducted by their men. The chairman of the county board, Edward Walsh, said that he knew of no rule against it. He noted that it was not an Irish game, but said he saw no reason why cricket should not be played. GEA-sanctioned cricket matches in Wexford never did take off, however, so the pitch at Morntown was left to the newly invented game of Gaelic football. The first match, indeed the first championship match played by any county in Ireland, was played between Tamon and Kilmannan at noon on Sunday the 6th of February 1887. On almost every Sunday through that February and March and April, the Wexford football championship continued drawing huge crowds and no little controversy. The excitement of the games inspired spectators regularly to break through the paling onto the field of play to join in. In one match, a local journalist reported every rule of the association was broken. <laughs> Things, the journalist wrote, were not helped by the fact that control of it was given by some misadventure to an incapable referee. The pick of the disputes, fittingly, was reserved for the county final when Castlebridge played Kilmannan on Sunday the 20th of March 1887. Kilmannan were leading by two points to one late in the game when a dispute arose over the referee awarding a point to Castlebridge. This was objected to by the Kilmannan men. Castlebridge refused to play on if the point was not awarded and Kilmannan refused to play on if it was. 
so the match was duly abandoned. The matter was reviewed by the Wexford County Board when it met again on Saturday the 2nd of April. At the meeting, the referee, Mr Kyo, who was also the County Secretary, explained that neither he nor his umpire had actually seen the point, but that it had been seen by a clergyman. <laughs> As Mr Kyo told the meeting, I gave it in deference to Father Sinnott who saw it. This admission of a godly intervention provoked a long debate which ended with a decision that the match should be replayed. That replay has yet to take place. <laughs> Kilmanon, who had not conceded a score in any of their matches before the final, remained outraged and simply refused to play. Presumably, they knew full well that although the hawk-eyed Father Sinnott was the parish priest in Murntown at the time, he had been born and reared in Castlebridge. <laughs> Either way, Castlebridge were deemed the first football champions of Wexford. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> the year's football was not finished, however. Teams of Wicklow footballers took the train to Wexford to play matches in November 1887. The matches were again played at Murntown but the stand collapsed and injured some people, one of whom later sued the county board for a serious sum in damages. There was chaos on the field too. The football matches had to be stopped due to relentless fighting between the Wexford and Wicklow men, <laughs> who set at each other with great relish. It is enough to say that the future had loomed plainly into sight. I decided it was about time to get into the Christmas mood. So I opened a folder of precious family photos of my computer, from recent color festive memories, all the way back to black and white photos of my ancestors. Meeting relatives and interviewing them to learn our family history has been one of my Christmas traditions since long ago. Here is my Ukrainian grandfather in his military uniform during the Second World War. Like many Ukrainians, he fought the Nazis in the Soviet army. It wasn't easy to find his story because he left my grandma for another woman. And when he wanted to come back, she was too hurt to reconcile. He had died before I was born and grandma's description of him was quite dark. 
I tracked down his sister to learn the story of his family, and more colors emerged. In the 1930s, the Soviet regime was conducting a campaign to eliminate prosperous Ukrainian peasants as a class, considering them a counter-revolutionary force and a threat to socialism. As part of these repressions, my great-grandfather was sent to a labor camp in Siberia. Their possessions were forcibly confiscated, but my grandma hid some jewelry and went to a nearby town to trade it for food. On her way back, she noticed the Soviet militia conducting raids. She waded into a lake and for a couple of hours concealed herself among willow tree branches in the cold water, which reached up to her waist. She managed to feed her three children that night, but developed pneumonia and died. Her two younger children were placed in an orphanage, but her eldest, my 14-year-old grandpa, was denied entry due to his age. So he camped out on an orphanage doorstep, determined to stay with his siblings. His persistence paid off, and he was offered a job there, transporting churns of milk from the market. A lot of children died of malnutrition, my great aunt told me. But your grandpa would rinse those churns and share that milky water with us. So we survived. And here is the oldest photo I have. I acquired it when I was on a genealogical trip to Israel during the Christmas holidays some years ago. It captures a big Jewish family, distant cousins of mine through my father's grandparents. They had lots of descendants who scattered around the globe, with some living in Russia, some in Ukraine, Lithuania, Germany, the United States, and some made Israel their home. The oldest relative, I called him uncle, organized a family reunion and announced at the gathering, we're here because of this goy girl, I blushed at such an introduction, who collects family stories. Her father was the first one in our family who broke the covenant and married a non-Jew. Why is he making such a big deal of it? I thought and nervously swallowed. But he continued to quote Ezekiel, the child will not share the guilt of the parent, so we'll just celebrate our shared ancestors. I then understood why Uncle Boris was suspicious of non-Jews. He was 13 years old when the Second World War reached the Soviet Union. Up to that year, Germany and the Soviet Union were allies, which did not stop Germany from invading in 1941. Boris lived in a small Jewish settlement. Male population was drafted. The military factory from that area and the Slavic civilian population were evacuated by the government's efforts. Jewish civilians were not. As the Germans approached, the majority of the settlement's residents chose to flee. It was yet another sad exodus of women, children, and the elderly, all walking and carrying what little they could. Boris was carrying his baby sister. His younger brother wandered off and got lost. They soon learned that he had been caught by the Nazis and executed. For Boris and his sister, Siberia became a place of safety and refuge. They returned home after the war, only to find their settlement completely ruined. Boris worked hard to rebuild their life, but Soviet policies restricted Jews from accessing certain positions and educational opportunities. Consequently, he immigrated to Israel 
in the 1970s. When I first contacted him in 2002, he immediately transferred $100 before even writing a word. I did not ask for money, but he probably felt obliged to continue to help his relatives who stayed behind. What about you? Are you considering moving to Israel? He asked me at the reunion. Its economy is flourishing. No, Uncle Boris. I can't bear the heat here. The heat, he repeated. Yes. It's the heat in this part of the world that bothers me. Since that time, the heat became unbearable in my own country, and I myself had to search for refuge. My Ukrainian grandpa did not live to see the war in Ukraine. Uncle Boris did not live to see the war in Israel. But I still have lots of relatives in both countries. My feelings this year are best reflected in these Christmas lines from the poet Longfellow. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Through researching my family tree, I discovered some beautiful black and white photos. I also discovered that the world is not black and white at all. Families and nations are yearning for peace and hopefully, hopefully with navigating through different shades and colors, we can reach our ultimate goal when the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Thank you very much. Uh, I have to say it's a real thrill to be up here, first time on the stage of the Opera House, and I have great fond memories of the old Theatre Royal, where I uh, played in Slogan many years with a rock band. <laughs> so I have a pretty decent backing band tonight. <laughs> 1978 was a memorable year for me. In March, the first Star Wars film burst onto the cinema screens in Ireland and into my 10-year-old imagination. It was mesmerizing. I wanted the force to be with me. And the piece that a resistance, the lightsaber, and its magical glow. We had so many battles with our imaginary lightsabers, brought to life with the menacing yet soothing hum it generated. In Wexford. We started anticipating Christmas once the Opera Festival was over. George Bridges, who owned the local toy shop, started his annual countdown of the weeks left to Christmas, a clarion call to focus on what we wanted, his shop window, with the odd Paul Markin dribble of drool, our portal to what Santa had to offer us. At home, I would notice my mum 
gathering in the multitude of ingredients needed to make the Christmas pudding. The momentum was slowly building. Once the 8th of December arrived, things shifted gear. In our house, that was the day the puddings were cooked. All the weighing, mixing, squeezing and grating got underway. The aroma of cinnamon, allspice, ginger and a zest of orange and lemon infused the air. The huge pot was produced, filled with water and placed on the gas hob to boil. The gas meter was loaded up and spare five pence coins kept at the ready. Once the steam started to rattle the lid, the pudding mixture, wrapped in cloth and tightly tied, looking like a white cannonball, was dropped in. It was left bubbling for hours, sending steam up to drip off the light, the walls and the lintel. <laughs> Windows thrown open despite the cold. Christmas was getting close. Then the Sunday arrived, when we'd all pull on wellies, hats and scarves and head out to Carrick, just outside Wexford Town, with my dad. We'd march around the big field, surveying the hedgerows for holly with lots of red berries. Then we'd cut through the old graveyard, down into the ravine with Carrick River flowing through it. It's a magical place, with a high rock face on one side and a steep hill on the other, watched over by tall birch trees. We gathered rich green moss off the rocks in the river and brown damp beech leaves from under the trees. The holly would go up around the house behind pictures on the walls. A sheet of newspaper was placed on top of the half-moon china cabinet. The simple wooden crib, which my dad had made, was placed in the middle. The green moss covered the roof, with a mixture of brown leaves and moss camouflaging the newspaper underneath. The crib came to life, with rich colours and the earthy smells of the woods. Mixed in amongst this verdant scene were the figures of Joseph, Mary, the baby in the manger, shepherds, lambs, a donkey and a cow. I marvelled at what Dad did. It was so beautiful and no other crib in Wexford could match it. Over the holidays, we travelled around the churches in Wexford Town, to Pierce's Town, Curraclough and Rosslare, to see their cribs. We offered prayers and cast a critical eye. Despite the impressive large figures and lights, none of the cribs, in my mind, could compare to my dad's. The excitement of Christmas 1978 was added to when the altar boys in Clannard Church were told that we were going on a trip to Dublin after Christmas to see the musical Annie. But what sent my imagination into overdrive was mention of the moving crib in Parnell Square. Visions of robotic figures creating the nativity scene flooded my mind. A donkey walking about with Mary on its back. Cattle moving their heads with their lowing. The shepherds walking in with lambs wriggling around their necks like live woolly scarves. And the three wise men sauntering along on their camels. This was going to be incredible. Maybe it could even rival Star Wars. <laughs> when we arrived in Parnell Square, I hurried to see the marvels that waited inside. We entered the basement and followed the path, passing along the various displays of large stationary figures of people and animals, telling the story of the Bible from the Garden of Eden right up to the birth of Jesus. Bar some heads nodding and arms waving, 
I was the one doing all the moving in this moving crib. After seeing Star Wars, my 10-year-old self felt conned. However, what lives on and grows more precious to me as I grow older is the memory of my mum lost in a haze of steam and being in Carrig with my dad, gathering holly and moss to decorate his perfect, simple crib. When I moved to Wexford more than 20 years ago, I was immediately struck by the, the richness of the place names like Wigram, where I live today. And it began a fascination with Eola, which is um, related to Fingalian from where I am originally from in Dublin, Fingal. And so I chose to write a poem that reflects our current place in Wexford in English, Irish and Eola. How yarth to thee, me joy, my joys, how are you today? The year hangs at the gate, the har o the gata. Come away, o oh me gasp, away with it. Tis the way we celebrate to it, the comings and the goings. Fat the feaser, I'm none the wiser. No matter the frankincense that plays on the air in the twin churches, like the hymns at the bride of the south and the row of the north. There's a look of rain in the sky, no matter. Weaning casts, the winding case unravels before us. 2024, come thee wiser, bring on your ways. But don't frighten the horses, says she, dinna faracholus could show. Dinna thara thug, said he, don't vex the dog, let him on the city. A lone robin patters on the shoulder of a lone caroler, waiting for white to descend on Wigram. On Bertacuig Fonox Lesailulin of Hardy Heralds. Tis time to rest and celebrate. Lig ut ed, idle out the day in your own merry way. The candle is to winnowing, the candle is to the wind, while a spider stays up late, threading its breaks and aches like diamantes. Atrakoop Arnonin. Health, wealth, and regard upon thee, says we. Heal, grew, and kin, apathy. The Wexford Carol breaks the silence. A robin takes flight.
That was a special St. Stephen's Day miscellany recorded earlier this month at the National Opera House Wexford. The readings were The Last Christmas Post by Joe Kearney, A Gift from the Family by Margaret Galvin, A Christmas Ball by Paul Rouse, Black and White Photographs by Antonia Gunko Carolina, The Crib by Joe Brennan, and A Yola Christmas, a poem by Alison Nivorchin. The music, all performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra, conducted by David Brophy, was The Croppy Boy, Liam Clancy's version, arranged for orchestra by Thomas Quigley and sung by Pira Solorcon. Good King Wenceslas, sung by John Malloy, and the arrangement was by Reginald Jacques. Boule of Vogue, also sung by John Malloy, the arranger was Eamon O'Gallagher. In the Bleak Midwinter by Gustav Holst, arranged by David Downs and featuring Diane Marshall on harp. And the Wexford Carol, arranged by Cormac McCarthy and sung by Pyrrhus O'Lorcon. On sound were Padraig Harney and Liam Mullen. Sunday Miscellany will be back at the usual time of ten past nine next Sunday, New Year's Eve, with writers John McKenna and Sharon Horgan among those on the billing. Sunday Miscellany broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.